0: Well, it's always exciting and yet daunting to start a new book in the Bible, especially a larger, longer one, and so we're going to be in the Gospel of John for the next several years probably, and uh, I'll leave it up to Kainoa and Ken to carry on if something happens and I I go to be with the Lord, who knows, you never know, right? So... uh, but we, we, we believe in teaching through books of the Bible here. It's not that we don't teach some topical things. And uh, we're right now teaching a little series, a topical series on Wednesday nights. If you're interested on the hallmarks of a biblical church, one thing I find in the world today is Christians, when they move, they're always wanting to know how to know what church to go to. And so uh, we're striving to become more of a biblical church each and every day, each and every week. And so these are just some of the hallmarks that we'll be looking at on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. over in the fellowship hall. But this morning, as we turn our hearts to God's Word, the Gospel of John, usually when I start a book, if it's a smaller letter, we will read through the entire book. I'm not going to do that this morning, <laughs> so rest easy. But we're going to be looking at just an introduction to this, and then next week we'll look, dive into verse 1. But you have your notes there, and there's a lot of different information there. We'll go through some of that today. The other one is just, uh, the rest of it is just there for your own study But we want to look at the nature and the purpose of John's gospel. Why did he write this? I think one of the most crucial questions that any person needs to answer in their life today, the most crucial question, is really the question that Jesus asked his disciples over in Matthew 16, 15. He asked them this question, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That has got to be the most crucial, important question that anyone could be asked today. And on that that occasion, you remember the context of Matthew 16 and verse verse sixteen sixteen. He says, Peter answered, and he answered by divine revelation. He didn't just know this. Uh, He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. God gave him specific revelation to make that statement. And Jesus even tells him so, hey, you didn't come up with this on your own, Peter. You know, this is something that God the Father has given to you. And so if, if Jesus, who is, is who the Bible portrays him to be, and if Jesus is who he claimed to be, and that is the Christ, you could say the Messiah, the Son of the living God, then the only sensible response is to what? Is to trust him as your Lord and Savior, because there is no other. There's nobody else waiting in line behind Jesus. There's a lot of other things that people look to to save them, but they are illegitimate. There's only one sensible response, and that is to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, uh, from sin, from judgment, and to follow him all the rest of your days here on earth as your Lord, as your, your leader. And if he is not who the Bible portrays him to be, if Jesus is not true to his word, if he is not the Christ, if he is not the Son of God, then let's just go home and watch some football, because we're just wasting our time here this morning. Uh, you're wasting your time if you're a Christian, if Jesus' claims are untrue. Because you're simply following somebody who's a fictional character, somebody that was made up of somebody's imagination. But we know that not to be true. We know that Jesus is exactly who he said he was and is. And so that question, who do you say that I am? When Jesus asks you that question, it's a very crucial, probably the most crucial question in life and the Apostle John, I think, was maybe thinking of Peter's confession when he 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 wrote this gospel. When he told us why he wrote the gospel, if you turn all the way to the back of the gospel, he tells us why. It's like if sometimes you read the end of the book, right, to figure out what the book is about—the last couple pages. Um, but look at what he says in verses chapter twenty, verses thirty to thirty-one. John tells us exactly why he wrote this book. We don't have to guess under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said, now Jesus did many other signs, in verse 30, in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, John is saying, I haven't included everything. There's a lot more that I've seen that I couldn't put in this book. But he says in verse 31, here's the reason. But these are written so that, the purpose clause there, this is why this book is given to us, this gospel, so that you may believe that Jesus is what? The Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's such a crucial verse. These verses are crucial. It gives us the purpose of why John is writing this whole gospel under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's not trying to persuade you to believe in some general notions about Jesus, some claims that he made, such as, well, he was a good guy, or he was a great teacher, or even that he was a what? A prophet from God. A lot of people conclude that. No, John is very specific in what he wants you to do by reading this book. He wants you to believe specifically that Jesus is the Christ, He is the what? The chosen one, the the anointed one, the Jewish Messiah who was prophesied of in the Old Testament. And he wants you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, which means he is God in human flesh. He tells us that in chapter 5, verses 18 to 29. We'll get to that in the Gospel of John in the coming weeks. And really, the pinnacle of faith in John's gospel, in the entire gospel, is when Thomas, remember doubting Thomas, Thomas sees the risen Jesus, and what does he proclaim in chapter 20, verse 28? My Lord and what? My God. John wants us to know that in Jesus, we have the unseen God, because in chapter 1, verse 14... John declares to us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only, listen, begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's speaking of Jesus Christ. And yet, a little couple verses down, four verses down in chapter 1, John one eighteen, John adds this, No one has seen God at any time, (laughs) because God is spirit. He's invisible. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Uh, In chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus tells Philip, Have I been with you so long, you remember that? And yet, you have not come to know me, Philip. This is after a long time spending time together, seeing all the miracles, seeing everything. And then he says this, he who has seen me, Jesus says, has seen who? The Father. How can you say, Philip, show us the Father? That's impossible. And so John wants his readers to know that who Jesus is first and foremost, and to believe in him as he is. The result of believing in Jesus is As the Christ, as the Son of God, as the Savior, he tells us that you will have life in his name in verse 31 of chapter 20. That word life means eternal life. See, everybody's going to live forever, beloved. We think sometimes we just die and that's it. No. The Bible speaks of a life hereafter, and that's both for Christians and non-Christians. For both believers and non-believers. Completely different qualities of life in eternity for those two groups of people. But you don't just die. You don't just go to the the ground and and that's it. There is eternal life. And so it's very important. John wants us to know that, you know what, this eternal life, you, you don't want to enter into it carelessly. And so he wrote his entire gospel... He says, so that you may believe, that you may believe in the Son, believe in the Christ, and understand that you can have eternal life by believing in him. And so this is the whole purpose of John writing this gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And there are thousands and thousands of pages that you can look up on your own when it comes to uh, background information on the, the gospel of John. And I basically scratched the surface in my uh, studies the last several months or so, getting ready for this series, and there's just so much, just incredible amount, just in, on the inter- introducing this book. We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks, and we're not going to do that. But, and so I, I kind of boiled it down to one statement, and it's kind of found there on the, on the end of the, the outline there, the overview, and the statement simply is this, for today, the Gospel of John is a selective, symbolic, eyewitness account of the person and ministry of Jesus, written so that you may believe in him as the Christ, the Son of God, and thus have life in his name. And so there's basically the outline for today right there in those four quick points. But there are many different ways to outline the entire Gospel, and it is uh, a lengthy book, but um, just to give you a little bit of an outline, I didn't have room to put it in your outline, but you can just uh, get these outlines anywhere, actually, but a lot of people outline the book this way. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, there's what we call the prologue, the prologue, and this is basically John bringing forth Jesus as the Son of God, the object of belief, uh, It's where he claims that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it sets the stage for the entire next uh, basically 12 chapters in the Gospel of John. And so you have the prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, and then verses 19 all the way to chapter 12, verse 50. You could say this is testimony for belief in the Son of God. In other words, John's saying, here's why I believe he is the Son of God. Here's what I've seen personally. Uh, And the key verse there is in verse, really, chapter 1, verse 41, where it says, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. Um, The initial belief in the Son of God, and then also subsequent unbelief in chapter 5 through 12 of the unbelief in the Son of God. So he talks about those who believe in the Son of God up to chapter 4, verse 54, and then chapter 5 through chapter 12, basically, he talks about those who do not believe in the Son of God. And then he gets into, he moves on from the testimony, and in chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17, he talks about the teaching of the Son of God for his followers. So when we get to that point, you'll see that he is he is talking about Um, teaching his followers. And the the verse there that kind of stands out is chapter 13, verse 1. He says he loved them to the end. And that's a wonderful thing to realize. The person you're following is not going to abandon you. If you're a Christian here today, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, no matter how difficult your walk may be, no matter what this world throws at you, you have to understand you are secure in Christ because he's the one that saved you. You didn't save yourself. And so it says that he loved them to the end in chapter 13, verse 1. And then we move on from the testimony and from the teaching. And then you see the the tragedy of unbelief in the Son of God in chapters 18 through chapter 19. And you see the, the Jews who Jesus came to that group of people. And they make the proclamation in chapter 19, verse 15. We have no king but who? Caesar. Wow. They forsook their own king, the Son of God, for a worldly Caesar. And then in verses 20, uh, chapter 20, verses 1 to 31, you see the triumph of the Son of God. And that's where you have Thomas, my Lord, my God. And then what we call the epilogue, or the closing uh, comments. It's the restoration of Peter, it's really the role of John is, is tending my sheep. You have that quote there. And there's a lot of different uh, ways to outline it, but we're, we're kind of going to be loosely going through that one. You know, there's a lot of people that call the, the gospel of John kind of like a, a a pool, you know, a swimming pool, in which both a young child can go in the shallow end, right, and be safe and kind of just wade in there, and they're not in fear of danger because it's such a shallow area of the pool. But then if you're an adult, you can dive into the, you know, 12-foot section as well. And that's really the gospel of John. A lot of times when somebody comes to Christ, they'll say, well, where should I start reading the Bible? And a lot of times I'll point to the gospel of John because of that purpose, that it's, it's here so that you can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so it's both simple and profound. On one level, a child can understand verses like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever puts their faith or trust in him will not perish, but have eternal everlasting life. But on the other hand, Uh, There's a lot of issues that we're going to find in the book of John that theologians have grappled with for years and still don't understand. And so it's both shallow and deep. And so whether you're just here today investigating Jesus or whether you've already put your faith or trust in Christ, whether you're a new believer, whether you're a seasoned saint, it doesn't make any difference. John writes to you so that you will believe and that you will have eternal life, and he wants you to grow in your faith as we go through this gospel together. And so the authorship of John is pretty simple. We know that John wrote this book, but just like the other three gospels, the gospel of John does not mention the name of the author uh, by name. None of the gospels do. And so you kind of conclude by reading through the text and finding certain verses that stand out that are uh, familiar with John and things like that that you realize that John, the Apostle John, is the author. He was a Jew. He's familiar with contemporary Jewish uh, opinions about a wide range of topics, including the Messiah, including formal religious training, including the relationship of of suffering to personal sin. He knows all about this. He brings all this out. He, he talks about the Jews' attitude toward the Samaritans in chapter 4. Um, he talks about women in, in, in verse 27 of chapter 4. He talks about the Hellenistic Jews of the Diaspora in chapter 7. He was familiar with the Jewish customs, including the necessity of avoiding ceremonial defilement with contact uh, with the Gentiles and the need of purification before the Passover, all these things. And so you you see that he was of of Jewish faith. You also know that he was a Palestinian Jew, uh, that he had a detailed knowledge of local places as we read through this, and this would only be available to those who had actually lived in Palestine. And so he distinguished between uh, the Bethany beyond the Jordan and the Bethany on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And he knew the precise distance of the latter from Jerusalem. It's pointed out in chapter 11, verse 18. He was familiar with Jerusalem itself, describing at least three sites that are not mentioned in the other three Gospels. Those being the Pool of Bethesda, the Pool of Shalom. And it mentions a a, a tower near the pool and the ravine of the the Kidron. So he had a, a detailed knowledge of these places. So he was from that area. But he was also an eyewitness. John was an eyewitness to a lot of these things. He gave specific details, even when they weren't even essential to the story of of the text. Uh, Many of those details could not have come from the synoptics because they don't, the synoptic gospels, because they don't record them. Um, They include the name of things like Judas Iscariot's father. He brings that up. He brings up how long Lazarus was in the tomb in chapter 11. The other Gospels do not. How long Jesus stayed in Sychar. The precise time at which certain events occurred, and there's many verses there. And the exact numbers of of the people there. He alone recorded that the loaves, remember that the the boy had, at the the feeding of the 5,000, were made of barley. Nobody else mentions that. Uh, After Mary poured the perfume on Jesus' feet and that the house was filled with its fragrance, he records that. He records that the branches the people lined the road with during the triumphal entry were palm branches. Or even that the Roman soldiers were in the party that accompanied Judas to Gethsemane. Other gospel writers don't include these things. Um, That Jesus' tunic was seamless. He mentions that. And that his faith, cl- faith cloth was separate from the linen wrappings in the tomb. So he had very much detailed accounts. So he was an eyewitness. And we know here that the author was an apostle. He was intimately acquainted with the twelve. And we're going to find that out as we go through this gospel. Uh, what they were thinking. What they were feeling. And we know that, fifthly, that the author was the apostle John. Uh, you know, he's It's remarkable that the Apostle John mentioned some 20 times in the other three Gospels. 20-some times he's mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's not named once (laughs) in his own Gospel. Pretty incredible. Um, So these are just some background information as we explore this, this book together. Um he He does not include this, which is kind of odd, unlike the synoptic gospels. Uh, John contains no narrative parables, no eschatological discourses about future things, no accounts of Jesus exercising demons or helping or healing lepers, no list of the twelve apostles is found in the book of John, and no formal institution of the lord's Supper is found here, which is pretty interesting. John also does not record Jesus' birth, nor his baptism, nor his transfiguration, nor his temptation, or his, his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, or his ascension. He doesn't record any of those things. On the other hand, John includes a large amount of material, you know, when you look at the synoptic gospels, you, you ask yourself, well, why do we have four gospels? Why don't we just have one? Because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God wanted four different perspectives of Jesus' life, which is really helpful. Because all these gospels are different. We call the, the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, meaning that they're they're basically seen together as a group. When you read through Matthew, you can read through Luke and find the same story almost. Maybe a little different account, a couple little different details, but pretty much it's the same thing, and the same thing when you read through Mark. And so if you look at these four Gospels, why four? I think, first of all, to give a more complete picture of Christ. Matthew was a tax collector. He was Jewish. He was a Jewish audience, and he emphasized that, that, that Jesus Christ is the king of Israel. He had a a, a Jewish audience. And then you have Mark, who was a fisherman. His audience was a Gentile audience. Mark is the shortest gospel of all of them. Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. He was a uh, Gentile, and he basically wrote to a Gentile audience, and Luke is the longest gospel. Now, Matthew has more chapters, but when you break down the word content, Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. And then we have the Gospel of John. The first three, basically, you're going to see a lot of similarities when you're reading through those, but when you read through the book, uh, the Gospel of John, the one thing you have to understand is that there is a lot of information that is in John that is Original with John. 93% of the book is original with John. You're not going to find any other Gospels at all. And so it, it covers everything from Jesus' early ministry in Judea and Samaria, his first uh, uh, miracle, his dialogue with Nicodemus, his encounter with the Samaritan woman, his healing of the lame, the blind man, both at Jerusalem, his bread of life, Discourse when he talks about him being the bread of life, his claim being the living water, and he goes on and on. And there's a lot of different things. Now, you have to understand there's two things you have to bear in mind when you concern the differences between John and the synoptic gospels, the other three. First of all, those differences are not contradictions. A lot of times people will read one of the Gospels and then they'll read the same story in another Gospel. Oh, look, it says it happened here and there's this many people, but this person says, oh, that's a contradiction of Scripture. No, it's not. It's just, it's like if, if, if I went out and saw an accident on the corner down here and I came and back reported to you and you went and you saw the same accident and came back and gave a report, you'd probably have a different perspective than I did, right? And that's what the Gospels do. They give us a different perspective, different personalities. And so there's nothing... Nothing in John contradicts with the other three Gospels at all. It's, it's in vice versa. They don't contradict John. So it, it's not that. Secondly, the differences between John and the Synoptic Gospels must not be exaggerated. Both John and the Synoptic Gospels, both, all four, present Jesus Christ as the Son of Man, as Israel's Messiah, as his chosen one, as the Son of God, God in human flesh. All four Gospels picture him as the Savior who came to save his people from their sins. That he died a sacrificial death on a cross, and then on the third day he rose again from the dead. They all conclude that. And so that's kind of the the breakup between that. And they also, it enables us objective verification of their truthfulness. When you have more than one story, that's why in police work you always want to get more than one witness. And you've probably watched the cop shows that I watch once in a while, and you see somebody tell what happened at the accident, and they go to somewhere else or a fight or whatever, and somebody else gives a completely different story. And so you've got to find out, okay, which one is true. And so when we have all these different accounts through the four Gospels, that helps us do that. Uh, So when was it written? It was written somewhere between 80, probably in 90, 100 AD. We can't really be specific on that. There's a lot of studies that go into that kind of stuff. We're not going to really waste our time here today with that, but just say 80 to 90 AD. The theme is Jesus is the Son of God, and the purpose we read for you out of John 20, uh, verse 30 to 31, that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you may, by believing, have life in his name. The place tradition holds for the writing of this book by the Apostle John is in, he wrote it from Ephesus. He wrote it from Ephesus. And there's a list there of key words, and it's pretty incredible when you do a Bible word study on some of these words uh, because there's certain words that just are are mentioned over and over and over in the book of John but are hardly mentioned in the other Gospels. And it's just the way God, God works. And so let's look at our our overview as we look at this. The first point there, the Gospel of John is a selective account of the person and ministry of Jesus. And we've kind of covered most of that, talking about the synoptic Gospels and things like that. But I think it's important to realize that this is not a... uh, uh, just a, a general book. This is very selective. It's a very specific account of an individual that God was working through at a point in time, and he wanted us to see certain things. Uh, he tells us of the first miracle when he turned water, when Jesus turned water into wine. He alone says that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. None of the other Gospels say that. Um, it's even included there, his direct assertion that Jesus is the eternal God who created all things. You can see that, and we'll see that next week in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1. But he also includes the interviews with Nicodemus, as I mentioned, the women at the well. He tells of the healing of the nobleman's son and, and various other miracles that Jesus did. Um, Jesus alone records Jesus' raising of Lazarus from the dead. Um, John tells of, of Jesus' washing the uh, disciples' feet in chapter 13, in the, all of his teachings in the upper room, where he, he gives uh, mention of that at the, the last, when he was teaching there in the upper room the Last Supper, but he doesn't include the Last Supper. <laughs> he doesn't include that time. So uh, a lot of people believe that the reason is is because this was kind of the the last gospel that was written. The other ones were already written. And so as John's writing, he's probably thinking, well, they got all this information. He was familiar with the other three gospels. And he probably thought, hey, you know what? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to repeat everything they say. So I'm going to be a little more specific. So it's interesting that over 90% of his writings, his details, are specifically... um, uh, genuine to John. They're not mentioned anywhere else. He tells of things like Thomas's doubts, uh, the disciples' encounter with the risen Lord on the beach in Galilee. And so John carefully chose all these events to, uh, and much more, really, to, to give a selective insider's portrait, you might say, because he was an insider. He's one of the 12. Uh, of our Savior. Well, the second point there, the Gospel of John is a symbolic account of the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. When you read through the Gospel of John, you're going to find that it's full of symbolism. It's full of symbolic language that really it causes you to pause. It causes you to stop and think about what is he really saying here? What is he really saying here? Now, this doesn't mean that John bends the historical truth and into fiction or anything like that for the sake of his story. That's not what we're talking about, but what John reports actually happened, but there is often a deeper, you could say, significance behind what he's reporting, behind the historical facts. Um, Rather than referring to Jesus' miracles or wonders, terms the other gospel writers use, uh, John calls them specifically signs. He caused them signs, as we saw in verse 30. Many other signs Jesus also performed. Um, A sign points to something beyond itself. That's the point of it being a sign. John wants us to know and perceive the deeper meaning behind all these miracles. Uh, Out of the hundreds that he could have chosen, John picked seven signs. And he didn't include Jesus' resurrection. He didn't include the miraculous uh, post-resurrection catch of, of, of fish. Um, he, he picked the seven signs. Um, changing the water into wine, as we mentioned, healing the nobleman's son, healing the lame man at the pool, Bethesda, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing the, the man born blind, um, raising Lazarus from the dead. Um, and so he, he, he mentions all these these other things, but, but he specifically calls these these seven signs. And at least three of these miracles, we don't have to guess as to their significance because he simply, Jesus tells us what they, what they are after feeding the 5,000. For example, Jesus proclaims in chapter 6, verse 35, what? I am the bread of life. <laughs> Right? Once again, calling people to himself to believe. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Uh, Before opening the eyes of the the man who was born blind, Jesus asserts this in chapter 8, verse 12. What's he say? Another symbolism. He says, I am the light of the world. Right? That's symbolic language. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Even before he raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus told Martha, I am the what? The resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And and by the way, these are are three of seven I am claims that Jesus makes in the gospel of John. And a lot of us are Familiar with those? I am the door of the sheep, he says. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the true vine, he says. And each of these cases, you, you got to think about the symbolism of what he's saying. Jesus isn't saying, I am literally a door, right? We know that. He's not literally a vine. Uh, and so he, he has a broader meaning, a deeper meaning. And we can come to understand that as we go through this book. Uh, John also uses a number of key words that have symbolic significance. Um, he wrote that you may have life in Jesus' name. Um, he uses that word life many times, and it's, it's always related to the, the concept of the new birth, that you are, are a new physical or a new spiritual birth is happening when you come to Christ. And the opposite is true of those who do not possess new life in Jesus. And it's basically, he concludes that they are spiritually dead. They have no life. And so that's a symbol, symbolistic picture that he gives us. He also uses that picture of lightness and darkness uh, continuously throughout there. Uh, another symbolic word that he uses is the word world. It's used 78 times in the Gospel of John. Um, in John 1.10, he says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. In the first two uses, it refers to the earth and all that's in it, including people. But in the third instance, it carries the nuance of sinful people who rejected him. Those people who are under the dominion of Satan. The ruler of what? This world, he says. So he uses that word 78 times, but you really have to understand the context of what he's talking about exactly. Um, He talks about uh, believers. He says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world, right? So there's a number of other key words that you can go through. Um, I thought this was interesting. John uses the word witness, the word witness 14 times as a noun and 33 times as a verb. Now, in the other Gospels combined, they only used the noun four times and the verb twice. Isn't that interesting? That word for witness. And so he begins by saying that John the Baptist, the Gospel always calls him simply John, but it was John the Baptist, came as a witness to testify about the light and, um, so that all might believe through him. And there are seven witnesses to Jesus Christ in the gospel. He talks about the Father as a witness, Christ himself, the Holy Spirit, Jesus' works, the scriptures, John the Baptist, and seven, a variety of human witnesses, such as the disciples, Samaritan women, um, the woman, and the multitude. And these were to establish the truth. This is another word, that, that concept that John really uses a lot. He uses it 25 times. Um, against once, it's only used once. Do you know that? It's only used once in Matthew, that word truth. And it's used three times each in Mark and Luke. But he uses that, that, that word much more, 25 times. And so when you, when you stop and think about it, there's a lot of different things here that we can look at as we go through this study. But it's important to realize that it's a symbolic account of the person of Jesus Christ. Um, thirdly, the gospel of John is an eyewitness account of the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. He says that in verse 30 of chapter 20, doesn't he? He says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, of the disciples. John witnessed himself. He was an eyewitness to these events that he reports. He wasn't getting this third hand. He saw firsthand, um, and this establishes the truth. As we go through this book, this gospel, you'll see the truth just come out because you have a verified witness of, of these things happening. Uh, now, a lot of liberals in their theology they dispute that John even was the author of this book. The Apostle John was the author. They dispute that. Uh, they say, oh, you know, uh, Paul wrote. Uh, you know, uh, he didn't write many of his epistles, and you know, there's a lot of people that argue the fact that that these men actually wrote these words from God. I remember hearing J. Vernon McGee on his radio program. He was talking about a student that was in taking a, a uh, course on the Gospel of John. And in his humorous way, he said that he took this student, took this class and, uh, in seminary, and it was, the class was solely on the authorship of the Gospel of John. That's what the whole class was about. Did John write the, the gospel or not? And finally, the student said at the, at the end of the, the study, at the end of the many months in this class, the, the professor finally concluded the course by saying that he thought that John was the author. <laughs> and and Jay Vernon McGee said, you know, interesting, the student says, well, I believe John wrote, wrote the book before I even started the class. What a waste of time, <laughs> right? And that's kind of where we're at. I mean, we're not here to question the Word of God. We're not here to uh, argue down these these endless uh, paths. But there's a, a, a lot of credible internal and external evidence that John is the apostle who wrote the Gospel of John. And, and we'll be going into some of that as we come across it in the text. And then the fourth point here today, just quickly, is the Gospel of John is written so that you may believe in Jesus Christ, as or Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God and thus have life in his name. This is really the purpose of the entire book. John wants you to believe, not in generalities, but in specifics. See, it's not good enough to say, well, Jesus was a good guy. That's not going to save you. It's not good enough to say that he was a good teacher, or that he was a prophet, or anything else. No, he says, in other words, you have to have life in his name. You have to believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. You can't just acknowledge his existence. That will not get you to heaven. As a matter of fact, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, we, we find there's a section where Jesus uh, is, is talking about people that come before him in the end. And haven't we done this in your name, Jesus? Haven't we done this, Lord? Haven't we done that? And, you know, we raised the dead, we healed the sick. In your name, Jesus. And, and what's, what's his answer? He says, I don't even know who you people are. Away <laughs> with you. Okay, so you, you want to make sure that you understand what it means to not only uh, believe, right, but to believe specifically in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. This is what he wants from us, and John makes it very clear and that the proper response to the truth about Jesus is not something you're just going to conclude on your own. It's not automatic, just like he, he told Peter, hey, you didn't come up with this on your own. This is something that co- God has to cause change in our own heart, in our own mind, to believe the gospel. In spite of all the strong evidence, people divide over Jesus. Um, you know That's just the way, way it is. But John makes it very clear that, you know what, you can't just accept that he existed and thought that he was a nice guy. No, you have to come to him as your Lord and Savior. Um, And so John uses this this verb, you're going to find out the verb believe, he uses it 98 times throughout the gospel. But he never uses the noun form of that word. He only uses it as a verb. He calls you to action. Faith must have content that is true. You can't just say, yeah, I have faith. No, what, what is your faith in? You must believe certain truths about Jesus. And this is where a lot of people get into trouble. They, they talk about people who are of the Mormon faith or of the Jehovah Witness faith. And, oh, they're so dedicated. They're such lovely people. And, boy, you know, I'm sure God will take into account their, their um, diligence. No, they have the wrong Jesus. They're not believing in the Jesus of the Bible. They're believing in a Jesus that they came up out of their own ingenuity and their own mind. They created a fabric of their imagination, and they are following what we would call false Christ. Yeah, there's some of them are nice people. They're genuine in their faith, but their faith is wrong. And so this book really points out that, you know what, you can't be kind of the the person that just says, oh, let's just all be religious and all just, you know, conclude that Jesus was a good guy and a good teacher and a wonderful prophet from God, and I guess we'll be okay. It doesn't matter whether you're Muslim or you're, um, you know, Buddhist or Christian or whatever. No, that's not what Jesus says, and that's not what the Gospel of John says. Um, It's possible to have what I would call a superficial belief in Jesus. You can believe in Jesus. You can have faith in Jesus all day long and not have eternal life because you're not believing correctly in what the Bible says we need to believe in. And that's why it's so important that we're going to dig into this book and find out. For for John, belief in Jesus is both initial and ongoing as a person learns about who Jesus is. See, belief in Jesus isn't just a one-time deal. Yeah, Steve, when I was three, you know, in third grade, I raised my hand in my Sunday school class and said I believed in Jesus and they had a party and, boy, everybody it was just fun. Yeah, I've been a Christian ever since. Well, what has Jesus done for you lately? Has Jesus been active in your life lately? See, it's wonderful to have a testimony of how Christ changed your life, but you don't want to say that, well, Christ changed my life and, and that's it, it's done and over with. And there's nothing that's affecting my life now based on that change that I had many years ago. That would be a false faith. That would be a false conversion. You're trusting in something that's not genuine. Because if Jesus isn't working newness in your life each and every day, I would say there's something wrong. Because that's what he calls us to do. Right? He calls us to walk in the newness of our faith. And and when we say we believe in Jesus, it's not just, oh yeah, I believed in him back here. No, it's a continuous continuum of belief. The disciples initially believed in Jesus when they first met him, based on the testimony of John the Baptist. But they also believed when they saw Jesus perform miracles, right? Miracle after miracle, when he turned the water into wine. Wow, that that bolstered their belief. But they also believed. Uh, Martha as well, they still needed to believe before they saw Jesus raise Nazareth from the dead. And yet John reports that when he he went into the empty tomb and he saw Jesus' grave clothes, it says that he believed. So, you know, it's a continuum. It's You continue to believe. Obviously, Thomas had believed in Jesus before the resurrection, but his faith was shaken by the crucifixion. Right? And we all go through ups and downs and valleys in our, in our lives, but see, it's, it's a continuation of our belief. It's something that we grow in. Um, John, or Thomas, had to see the risen Savior so that he would not be unbelieving, but believing. And that's what you have to ask yourself. You know, are you... There's a lot of believers today that really live as if they're unbelievers. They are haunted with doubts, their heart haunted with fear, their life is full of sin, and yet they believe in Jesus. And Jesus says, "Wait a minute." As Kinoa taught last week, there's a cost to following Christ. There's a cost to discipleship. And Jesus demands that we meet that cost. He pays it for us, but we have to meet him at that place. And it will cost us to follow Christ. And the question is, are we seeing that in our lives? So the first crucial question is, who do you say that Jesus is? That's the question I leave you with today. Um, And after you've answered that question, I think the second crucial question is, have you believed in him so that you will have eternal life? And if not, why not? What are you waiting for? There's no other backup plan. He is the only answer for the forgiveness of our sin. He's the only one that was able to die on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins because he was truly the perfect Lamb of God. And if so, you'll you'll still need to believe further if you put your faith and trust in Christ. And you'll get to understand more of who Christ is as we go through and walk through this gospel in the coming years together. And really ask God to reveal More of Jesus to your heart as we study through this, and that's why I said, you know what, at the beginning, when someone asked me as a new believer what book would I read in the New Testament, would I recommend that they read? I always point them to the Gospel of John because it's as simple as a child could read it, but it has some profound truths in it as well. But I always tell them this: when you read it, ask God to reveal Himself, reveal Christ to you as you're reading the words of Scripture, and that's how we should always read scripture, right? God, you know, we don't just want to check it off the list. We're doing our devotion, and that's, no, God, what are, you, what are you speaking to me through your word today? What do you What's one truth you want me to pull out of these verses as I study your word? And as we approach it that way, then we'll really understand more about who Christ is and what he desires for us as we walk with him. Amen? Amen. Well, let's close in prayer, and then that'll be our introduction next week. We'll get into the actual text of the first chapter. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, had His hand in every part of who we are, creating us, giving us your word. He is the Word. Um, he's the way, the truth, the life. And Lord, if there's any here today who is yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray, Lord, that as only you can, we can't make that decision for them, uh, Lord. Only. You can cause their heart and their eyes to be open to your truth. Uh, Lord, only you can show them um, the sinfulness of their own heart and life and their need for repentance, the changing of their mind, and, and also just a turning from their sin to the Savior and asking your Son, the Lord Jesus, to forgive them of their sin, to cover them with his righteousness. Only you can cause that, affect that change in their in their heart and life. And we pray that you would do that today. Lord, whoever's hearing this message, whether it's here in person or over the radio or on the internet, Lord, we ask that you would do your work in their heart, that you would convict them of their sin, that you would call them to the Savior, that you would give them the belief they need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Chosen One of God, given as a sacrifice, as a benefit for our sin, to forgive our sin, and that on the third day he came out of the tomb victorious and risen, victorious over sin and death. And Lord, we can have that same victory in our own lives when we follow him. And if we're believers here today, I pray that we would examine our own hearts as we go through this book together to see how you are working out that faith in our lives. Lord, it's wonderful to have something in our past history when we committed our life to Christ. But Lord, there should be some freshness to our Christian faith. There should be something you're doing that Christ is doing, that the Spirit is doing in our our lives each and every day that causing us to become more like Christ. And Father, we, we know that sometimes that process is not comfortable, the stripping away of the old self and putting on Christ each and every day. Sometimes that's a hard thing to do. But Lord, we thank you that you do that for us, that you provide the Holy Spirit, the conviction. We give, you've given us your, your word so that we could have our own personal copy to study, to memorize. Lord, we have given us a wonderful church that we could be part of to study and to fellowship together. And, Lord, we just thank you for your constant provision for us as your people. And so, Lord, we're excited to start this study um, next week, and we pray that you would lead us and guide us in all these things. And, Father, we also we, we, we think of those in our body who are... Um, dealing with things. I think of specifically our Amanda, who's recovering from her foot surgery. We pray for her that you would continue to bless her recovery. I know it's coming along okay, but she's been in a lot of pain and just pray that you'll continue to minister to her. And uh, we, we we think of others, Lord, that have uh, different things going on in their lives in our congregation as well. And Father, we pray for our fellowship time across the way as we gather around lunch and just have uh, a time of food and, and fellowship and just sharing with each other. And uh, Father, we thank you Uh, for your provision. Thank you for the ladies that put together the food each week. And just pray that you would bless us as we go our way today and give us a great week and pray that we would look for opportunities to serve you, to witness for you in this lost and dying world in which we live. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, Amen. amen. Amen.